was born in 1907 in the city of Leeds in Yorkshire, England. He was raised in a God for his earlier believed in the power of prayer. His earlier recollection of school was that of being in recite the commandments. As early as five years old and having to memorize, attending all many of the Psalms. At age 14, he was attending all-night prayer meetings. Noah, how would you like to do that? Yeah. Don't worry. I don't anticipate us doing that this week or anything. Young Leonard Ravenhill attended these meetings, and it became a passion that he carried with him throughout the rest of his life. After being trained for the ministry at Cliff College, it soon became evident for most street evangelists. Mr. Ravenhill's ministry really started in England when he was only about 16 years old. His burden for the loss took him to the streets, where he began to the local gypsy community. 71 years later, he was walking on the streets of glory. One of his sons, David Ravenhill, reflected on his dad's life and how the Lord used him in some powerful ways, which left an indelible impression on his life too. Preacher, he writes, quote, My father was a powerfully anointed in a way who could bring down the convicting presence of God in a way that very few can. People would begin making their way to the altar in their hearts even before any invitation was given, having their hearts pierced by the word of God. His preaching was superseded only by his passion for prayer. Like the Apostle Paul, he carried the daily pressure of concern for the church. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Prayer was his life. Prior to his death in 1994, he told me that he had received a number of requests from seminary students who wanted to come and see him for the sole purpose of having him lay his hands on them in order to receive his mantle. With his typical dry British humor, but at the same time deadly serious, he said, everyone wants to have my mantle, but nobody wants my sackcloth and ashes. Sitting at his bedside only days after the stroke that was to take his life, David, Mr. Ravenhill's son, wrote these words. A tribute to a godly man. I knew a man who gave his life to see revival fire. He prayed by day, he prayed by night to birth this one desire. He had but one obsession, to see a glorious groom's side. His power while in the pulpit was matched by very few. And yet he loved the closet therewith the God he knew. While others strove for man's applause, for fortune and for fame, he had but one ambition, to exalt his master's name. For 87 years he lived just for eternity, a man of faith and wisdom and true humility. He knew one day he'd have to stand before God's judgment seat, and so he ran to win the prize 
his mission to complete. The fortune that he left behind was not in stocks or gold, but lives transformed and challenged, their stories yet untold. There is no greater privilege than this I have had of knowing this great man of God and having him as dad. What a profound impact. What a profound impact that one example of a dad, of a parent, just like many of you, can have on someone living just a few feet from them. One man's God-centeredness paved the way for another man's life to also live for his master's name. You know, we live in a day where people are always talking about finding their purpose or following your dreams or make an impact on the world in order to make it a better place. That's because inside many of us, there is this aching. There is this longing to be happy and whole to be respected and appreciated, to feel loved and needed. When we boil it all down, we want to find some sense of significance with our lives. We want to make our lives count for something. So if these things are true, what do we often find ourselves doing? Well, we begin to search. We toil. We pray. We we try to figure out what our lives are to be all about. I mean, that's why we have the career-driven types in the world, do we not? People who are constantly looking for the perfect job that will match their gifts and imagine their job will bring them endless joy. The job that will fill their wallet with a surplus of money. The job that will give them security for the future. The job that will give them a sense sense of worth boosting their self-esteem among their peers and maybe everyone they come in contact with. Then there are others who are looking for happiness and love and meaning through fulfilling relationships, especially romantic relationships. Instead of being content by cultivating the relationships that God already gives us, they search endlessly online or at the bar, or even some go church hopping, trying to look for that perfect friend that will never leave them or let them down, or that special someone to marry, their soulmate, if you will. Somewhere along the way, men and women also find themselves fantasizing and imagining having the perfect little family, a spouse that always appreciates them, Two kids that look like them and look up to them. A two-car garage, a dog that never tears anything up. And neighbors that feel blessed to have them living right next to them. You know, it's a combination of living the American dream. Having your own little house on the prairie. While being the center of attention of everyone else's life. But you see, as Christians, we've been called to a higher calling. We've been called to a greater ambition than living for merely those trite goals. Friends, we've been called to live for a kingdom whose mission transcends 
our own itty-bitty lives. We've been given the amazing privilege, think about it, of having a personal relationship with the living God, our Creator, a relationship filled with worship and awe, one out of love and devotion, one that's marked by constant dependence. In fact, a daily dependence. But you see, if we're not careful, even as Bible-believing Christians, if we're not watchful over our own hearts, we can tend to make little of God. We can make much of ourselves, much of our churches, and we can even do all of this at the expense of using others and robbing God of his glory. You see, if we're not careful, we can use the church of all places as a platform to draw attention to ourselves like the church is one big performance, like we're the main star in a play. We can even take verses out of context in the Bible to use it to fit our own agenda and our selfishness and in our pride. And friends, we can even use something as simple as prayer and turn it into something that does not honor the Lord. Instead of viewing prayer through the lens of adoption as sons and daughters, we can begin to use prayer through the lens of performance. God is no longer the sovereign almighty Instead, he becomes our little good luck charm. He's our get-out-of-jail-free card. Instead of the first person we call upon for help in our needs, he's kind of the last resort we fall back on when all our other gods fail us. Whether it's praying to God as if we could manipulate him with our words and our emotions or even use prayer as a spotlight on ourselves, left to ourselves, we can turn a good thing like prayer to feed the animal of pride inside us. Friends, that's why you can tell a lot about someone's relationship with God by listening and watching their prayer life. You can tell a lot about someone's relationship with God by listening and watching their prayer life. I mean, noticing if they pray, what they pray, or even how they pray. In that sense, prayer serves like a thermometer of our spiritual life. For David Ravenhill, his father Leonard, left him a lasting legacy, a lasting imprint, an indelible impression of what a God-centered, God-dependent, and God-exalting life should look like. What did young David attribute to his dad's godly example? His power while in the pulpit was matched by very few and yet he loved the closet there with the God he knew. Friends, what is your current prayer life saying 
about your relationship with God? What is my current prayer life? Not what you see up here, but only what God sees. Saying about my relationship with God. Well, throughout his ministry, Jesus would teach his disciples many things. Through parables, through private conversations. He would teach them what it meant to inherit the kingdom of heaven. He would teach them what it meant to be a disciple of his. He would teach them what it is to be a son or daughter of the Most High God. And if you put all the Gospels together, and you read them together, you'll notice how Jesus really just repeats himself over and over and over again. He would tell his disciples multiple times and in multiple ways where he came from, why he came, and what he was there to accomplish. But for whatever reason, the disciples are much like us. We're stubborn, we're slow of heart to believe, and we need to be told things multiple times in multiple ways. Well, one of the things the disciples would ask Jesus was something they saw in Jesus' life. They saw it. They heard it. And they wanted to imitate it in their life too, like a good disciple sitting under a rabbi like Jesus. In Luke 11, verse 1, we read, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Friends, how would you define prayer? When you think of prayer, what comes to your mind? What kind of image? Is it bowing down prostrate to the ground seven times a day, three times a day? Is it folding your hands before a meal? What images come to mind when you think about prayer? What exactly do you think we're doing when we pray to God? Prayer is not a foreign concept to most people who've grown up in some kind of religious family. Muslims pray. Jews pray. Eastern religions that have some kind of pantheon of gods, they pray. Everyone, if you get to know them long enough, has something they rely upon, something they fall back upon. And I would say many are more religious than they realize. At the very least, people say they pray to a higher power, whatever that might be that works for them. But Christianity is something totally different than everything I just said. Prayer, according to Jesus, is intimately personal and an act of worship. Prayer is intimately personal and an act of worship. And why is that? Friends, we've been praying to a real God who is really alive. We are reading from a book that is truly living and active. We are, if you are in Christ, indwelt by the living Holy Spirit. Friends, we are not worshiping the ceiling. We are not talking to have a placebo effect on a stressful week. Friends, we are praying to a God who is here. God is among us. 
And when we pray, the Lord of heaven's armies hears. The great I am, the almighty, the sovereign God of the universe. Friends, this is the God of Psalm 103 who has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. This is the one we opened up our scripture with in this service. Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Friends, what Jeff read earlier from Daniel 4, it's a big chapter. I do that every once in a while to kind of, let's get a little endurance. Let's read a little large portions of scripture. But did you see how Daniel 4 ended? Here's this mighty, arrogant, self-sufficient American dream to the max, Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks that he became who he was by pulling himself by his own bootstraps. And the Lord said, here's a vision of something I'm going to teach you and all the nations. I'm going to make you a base like an animal. I'm going to make you graze amongst grass and have dew on your back. And I will make you, I will teach you that I am God. Friends, that is the God we are praying to. That is the God we are beholding. That is the God we are telling our burdens to because he cares for us. So friends, how did Jesus answer that request amongst those disciples that were often confused just like us? Lord, teach us to pray. What did Jesus teach them? How did he teach them to pray? Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 5 to 15 this morning. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 473. And if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read in English for whatever reason, we have some paperbacks for you. Small print, get some glasses, or wait till we get bigger Bibles one day. That's a gift from our church to you. This morning, we're going to look at a very familiar passage on Jesus' teaching us individually as Christians how to pray, but also collectively as a church, as we learn how to pray together, as we follow Jesus together. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. I have four points for us that will kind of guide our time this morning. Two questions, two statements. Two questions, two statements. Number one, what is prayer? What is prayer? Prayer is communicating to God. Prayer is communicating to God. It's talking to God. It's conversing. The creature conversing with the creator. A prayer is a Christian's heart cry towards heaven's throne room. The prayer life of a believer is where God is loved, where God is relied upon, where God is exalted. Now, don't get me wrong. People can pray pretentiously. That means they can pray with a different agenda in mind other than talking to God. That means people can even pray in religious settings like this, or at Bible studies, or at small groups, or at elders' meetings, or deacons' meetings, or in budget meetings, and all the above. Maybe even at your own school. People can also pray with the wrong motives. Which leads to point number two, what should our heart posture be like in prayer? What should our heart posture be like in prayer? We should approach God with humility and thoughtful engagement. We should approach God with humility and thoughtful engagement. Now, here in this passage, Jesus starts off with a negative teaching. He's speaking of what we should be warned against when we're learning how to pray. And he's going to begin by warning us against pretentious and thoughtless prayers. Look with me at verse 5 again. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now look at verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. In other words, Jesus is warning his disciples how if we are left to ourselves, we can go one or two directions. Friends, that just shows you how fickle we are. We need to be taught even the simplest things like how to pray. So if you want to be discipled by someone, start off with asking, how does Jesus want us to pray? And so what Jesus does is he begins to poke holes in dead religions that are filled with people who are praying, but they're not praying with the right heart, and they're certainly not praying with their mind changed by the truth. He points out the dead religion of works-based righteousness or self-righteousness. He also pokes holes in the dead religion of empty, mindless paganism. 
What Jesus is conveying here is that at the very least, sincerity is not even the highest form of virtue when we're praying. Now, don't don't get me wrong. Praying sincerely is certainly better than flagrantly lying, okay? So don't misunderstand me, but Jesus is teaching us something here about even being sincere doesn't mean that we are sincerely right. We can be sincerely deceived. We can think that our repetition in our words, our emotions and our volume and all the things that we're doing is somehow awakening the gods. But friends, God knows our hearts. He knows both the content of our prayers and the intent of our prayers. And that's exactly why Jesus teaches them and he is teaching us by his spirit through the word how to pray. Have you ever had one of those embarrassing moments? You're so enamored with a movie you're watching and you begin thinking what you're watching is like really happening? Like you're in the movie? Come on, somebody, come on. You follow with me here. Think of that last cartoon you watched, Finding Nemo, Lion's King, you know, Lion King. Your emotions get so caught up in how you're forgetting, you're sitting in the living room, you're crying your eyes out, you're holding on to your teddy bear or your pillow. You were just so enamored with the scene of the movie, and all of a sudden a friend or a spouse walks in and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? And you're like, this, this moment, don't you see? Frodo came back. You know, we try to play it cool. Hey, you can't tell any of the buds later. Don't tell the kids. Friends, God never gets caught up in the movie scenes of our life. He sees exactly what is there. He knows everything that's going on. Friends, we can watch a movie and think what we're seeing is real, but then we need to be reminded it's all prescripted. These are real actors, they're paid. And they live real lives like us. Uh, The movies, they're not real. But we can think they are. But friends, when God hears our prayers, we can't trick him. We can't get, he doesn't get caught up in any kind of emotional frenzy of our life. He sees who we really are. Friends, that means we cannot even hide behind our prayers. So here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is first teaching on prayer by warning us because he knows the condition of our hearts. Jesus is teaching the same thing that's taught in the Old and the New Testament. Not all prayers come from a heart that genuinely loves God. Our hearts can be sick and self-deceived. Not all prayers want God's name to be magnified. Not all prayers want God's will to be done. Come what may. In our sinful and twisted hearts, we can turn prayer into an egotistical recital. It becomes something we do to manipulate others, to form thoughts about ourselves that our character says otherwise. Again, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is introducing us to these men he calls hypocrites. It literally means actors in a play. 
They're wearing a mask. They make long prayers. They wear certain garbs into the synagogue. But Jesus exposed their hypocrisy more than any other teacher could ever do. You could read Matthew chapter 23 sometime about how Jesus felt about their religious hypocrisy. One of the common things that characterized these men, these Pharisees, was the foul aroma of their prayer life. They used prayer to puff themselves up, to help others think about themselves in a way that actually wasn't true. Brothers and sisters, not all prayers are acceptable to God. Not all prayers are acceptable to God. God will not be mocked. He knows our hearts and he knows whether they're coming from a heart of love and faith or hypocrisy. Consider how God tells us in the Proverbs that if we turn a deaf ear to his word, he will turn a deaf ear to our prayers. Proverbs 28 verse 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Jesus here in Matthew 6 is only echoing the same warning that God gave apostate Israel. You remember Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11? What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Listen to verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Did you hear what the Lord said to Israel? I cannot endure your sacrifices and your assemblies when your hearts and your lives are full of hypocrisy. God doesn't play church. God doesn't play church. God takes serious how his people approach him in the corporate gatherings. Friends, how should that instruct you and I before we gather together each Lord's Day? 
how should that prepare our hearts before we stand and sing? How should that prepare our hearts when we take the Lord's Supper tonight? Scripture says if we come frivolously and casually to the Lord's Supper, sinning with a high hand, intentionally living in sin with no sign of repentance, the Bible warns us that judgment may fall upon you. Oh, friends, that should cause each one of us to pray before we enter this building, to pray in your car. If you get in an argument with your spouse before you come into the building, try to pray with your spouse or at least alone to the Lord. If you're sitting there in your chair and you're just in a bad mood, you know, fall back on the clock actually ruined your whole morning up. Well, you can pray right now in the quietness of your own seat. Friends, we should pursue God in the secret place, in the quiet, to prepare our hearts when we gather in public. D.A. Carson gives a good word here. Public prayer ought to be the overflow of one's private praying. So according to Jesus, our prayer life shouldn't stem from a heart that craves the praise and affirmation of man, but from a heart that worships God, a heart that loves him. That's why in verse 6, did you see this promise Jesus gives when our hearts are right in seeking God in prayer? But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, friends, I don't think Jesus is as concerned about the location of your prayers. So if you go home this afternoon and say, honey, you're taking care of the kids. I'm going to the throne room for like three days. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying there. Or go lock yourself up in a bathroom somewhere. You can do that. The point is not so much the location, but on the focus that you're on your knees seeking the Lord, even when no one else is around. Friends, do you see how amazing this promise is in verse 6? That our Heavenly Father sees you in secret when you're seeking Him by faith. You know, it says there that He will reward those who seek Him. I don't know if that means He gives us the answer to our prayer or he simply rewards us for seeking him by faith. I think either way, it's God's kind way of saying, seeking me is never in vain. Seek me, you will find me, and I reward those who seek me in the secret place. Be encouraged, my friend. God delights in the prayers of those who are broken and contrite. The Lord draws near to the humble, He hears the prayers of the righteous. Our Heavenly Father bids his children to come and knock at his door 24-7, and it will be open to us. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to hear our prayers than we are sometimes even willing to ask him in prayer. And friends, this is exactly why when we ask God in prayer, even if God doesn't answer our prayers exactly the way we want him to, listen to this, he may not give you what you ask for, but he will give you more of himself. And friends, if he gives you more of himself, it is enough. 
seeking him is never in vain. Well, now look in verse 7, where Jesus now talks about not just the hypocritical prayers, but the kind of formulaic and mechanical in nature prayers that the Gentiles, these pagans, would usher up. He says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Whether this was some type of ritualistic incantation to a false god uh, or something like it, uh, Jesus says that these pagans were ushering many words, but their words had no weight. It was just noise. It was just babblings and ramblings. Uh, They treated God more like a magic eight ball that you can just kind of shake up and hoping that God would say something. Uh, Nonetheless, Jesus here is just teaching us very plainly When we approach him in prayer, our hearts should be humble and our minds should be engaged. Our hearts should be humble and our minds should be engaged. That means we should pray intelligibly. Friends, if you're like, you know, like I don't know where to start in prayer. I get nervous in prayer. I'm kind of shy to pray in front of others and all the things in the above. Friends, God delights when we pray his word back to him. Take time just to read a few verses in your quiet time and use whatever portion of Scripture you read as a part of your prayer. Praying Scripture back to God is safe for our souls, and God delights in hearing it because it's true. Friends, God calls us to pray intelligibly, but He also calls us to pray confidently. Did you notice what He says in verse 8 of the confidence we can have when we approach Him in prayer? He says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Do you know that? It doesn't say he knows what you need after you ask him. He says he knows what we need before we ask him. You know, as bad as you want your friends or your spouse or your classmates to know what you're thinking I shouldn't have to tell you God already knows and that's a comforting thing if you're one of his children friends prayer is never you and I catching God up with our lives he knows what's going on it's it's his world and if you're in Christ he owns you he knows everything about you we live in his hourglass with every second of our life at his disposal. Friends, when we're praying, we're not catching God up on what's going on in the world. We are acknowledging our confidence that he is in control and he can be trusted. That's why prayer is there. God doesn't need us to pray to him as if he's lonely or bored, like he needs a friend to keep him company. No, God uses prayer as a means to teach us he can be trusted so that when he answers our prayers and exceeds those prayers, who gets the glory? He does. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He names and numbers the billions of stars in the universe. He knows the amount of hairs on your head. There is no need God is not aware of And there is no need that God cannot meet. Our God can be trusted at all times. 
Friends, does your prayer life reflect that type of confidence this morning? Do our prayers as a church family reflect that type of confidence? Your coworkers in your job, so you fret and complain endlessly? Or do they see a man or a woman who's trusting in a good heavenly father? Parents, do your kids see you respond to trials in your life with a sense that this God can be trusted in their life too? Married couples, do you trust that God will provide what you need even when your spouse doesn't treat you the way you wish they would? Oh, may we be a church that together reminds each other week in and week out our God is in control and he cares for us. But in point three, we're going to look at the prayer that Jesus said should shape all our prayers. What should we be praying for? What should be the priorities in our prayers? Well, here in verses 9 to 13, we have what many of us have considered the Lord's Prayer. It can probably be more aptly called the Disciples' Prayer or the Model Prayer. For example, we never see Jesus actually pray just like this ever in the New Testament. In fact, in John 17, the longest written prayer we have of Jesus, the high priestly prayer, he doesn't use these exact words there. The early church didn't pray these exact words in every prayer in the book of Acts or the epistles. But what you'll notice if you look at every prayer in the New Testament in one way or another, they are shaped They have been influenced by this model prayer in one way or another. So what does Jesus teach us about how this prayer should shape all our prayers? Well, the first is we see the acknowledgement of God as your heavenly father and a desire to see his name glorified on earth. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus prayed, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, for some of us, it's hard to even acknowledge that God is our heavenly father. Some of us have grown up in households where we didn't have a good dad. Maybe he was an absent father. He was an abusive father. He was a faithless father. He was a hypocritical father. He was not a man of his word. And friends, even if that's true, our Heavenly Father is not like that. So if you have a hard time relating to God as Father because of maybe poor examples you've had in your life, I just want to encourage you again, our Father is in heaven and he is a very different Father that you may have had on earth. Friends, this Heavenly Father sent us our greatest gift to meet our greatest need. John 3.16, don't you remember it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or Romans 5.8, have you ever questioned God's love for you? Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, maybe you're new to Christianity. You're here today. Maybe someone invited you. Uh, You actually took some manipulating or some coercing 
for some bargaining to come? Well, I'm glad they were able to trick you to come here, if that was true. But if you are here for at least the legitimate reason that you're considering Christianity, I just want to remind you of why we can call this this magnificent God our Father. You see, we're born in sin, and we're born into a world where our spiritual father is first the devil, the father of lies. We live in sin, we love sin, and we are led astray by others' sin. And you see, our sin makes us run from God. Our sin makes us not want to pray to God. In fact, if you go back to the beginning, in Genesis 2 and 3, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, did you notice who they were talking the most to? They spent more time talking and listening to Satan than they did talking and listening to God. They were praying and talking to and conversing with a different spirit. And friends, that's why we're in an awful predicament. That's why in our own sin nature, we can't approach this God as Father because we first appear before him as a guilty convict under a righteous judge. But the good news of the gospel is that God has demonstrated his love by sending his son, his only begotten son, to live a perfect life of trust and obedience. Jesus always prayed with the right motives in his heart to his heavenly father. Jesus always prayed with the heart posture of not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. His whole life was one obedient and pursuit of his love for his father. His obedience and even his last prayers on earth showed that he came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He prayed in Matthew 26, 41, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus not only taught us to pray, your will be done, but he embodied it by drinking down the cup of God's wrath for our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering the grave. And he calls all of us now to turn from our sins and call upon the Lord by faith. And you can be saved. Friends, the first prayer that God has ever heard in your life was the prayer where the spirit of the living God turned your heart to him. He is always in the business of answering his son's prayers in John 17. Oh, Father, all that you have given to me, keep all of them. Friends, every time someone becomes a Christian, it is God the Father answering God the Son's prayer. Do you know that? Friends, if there's someone in your life that you wish would be converted, join the triune God in praying for them. If you join up with God, praying even for the worst of sinner you know, the Lord can cause them to pray to receive Christ in his time, and in his way. Friends, that's what God has invited us to. We want his will to be done, his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Friends, do you know what prayer is, though, when we are gathered together as a body? When we are praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. Do you know what we are doing in the spiritual realm. 
Prayer is a declaration of war against the kingdom of Satan. Friends, every time we as a church are praying for God to work in our lives, we are declaring, King Jesus, come down and reign in the hearts of rebels. Penetrate the kingdom of darkness and may your name be made great. Friends, that's why corporate worship and Ian, Ian and I meet up about a couple of times a month to talk about corporate worship and why we do what we do. This, why, this is why we spend so much time thinking through the words of the songs, the words that we're reading in Scripture, the different types of prayers that we were having because we are declaring war. We want God's heavenly rule to rule on earth in Barling, Arkansas. We want God's heavenly rule to reign on earth in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and in Van Buren, Arkansas, and in Greenwood, Arkansas, and in Alma, Arkansas. We want King Jesus to be worshiped and hallowed by more people than they presently are doing right now. We want churches to declare war by calling on the Lord of heaven's armies your will be done. If suffering is the means by your will being done, come what may. If exploding this church tenfold in growth causes the gospel to go forward, then your will be done. Or if purifying our church and cutting our membership in half is God's will being done, we will pray for that to happen. Friends, this is war. You know those times on Saturday night and Sunday morning when you don't feel like coming to church? You might think you're just tired. You just might think, I've had a hard week. No, the enemy's been working on your soul all week. You know those times where you're like, oh, I know I need to pray about this person or that thing. I know I need to check up on that brother or that sister. I know I need to set apart time not to watch Netflix, but to be in my word. You know what's going on there? That's a war. It's a battle for your heart your affections, your thoughts. The greatest lie the devil's ever told that he doesn't exist. Friends, we are in a battle. We are in a war. And this is exactly why we need King Jesus to come and reign. Reign on more sinners' hearts, more churches, calling upon the Lord of heaven's armies to do a work that only God can do. Friends, he also teaches us not only for his kingdom to come, but he taught his disciples to rely upon God for everything they need for life and godliness. Look at verses 11 and following. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Now, there in verse 11, Jesus simply teaches us to pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread. I remember when I was growing up, my parents used to teach us that common prayer that maybe some of you were taught. You can probably mumble it under your breath if you'd like. thought about asking you to do it in the service, and then I thought, wonky and cheesy. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands, we all are fed. 
Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. That simple prayer is echoing Jesus's in Matthew 6, 11. Lord, give us our daily bread. We need even the smallest things from God, whether that's the next meal, whether that's next month's bills, whether that's during a time of sickness and marital crisis, we need God for everything. One author said that prayer is a declaration of dependence upon the God who sustains our life. But then Jesus moves on to say that we need God for ongoing cleansing of sin and the ongoing fight for our dependence upon him to be delivered of sin, the world, and even the devil himself. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And similarly says in verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Uh, Jesus connects the ability and capacity to forgive by first realizing how much we've been forgiven by him. The way God can forgive any of us is because God has provided for us a ransom to pay for our sin debt through Jesus Christ. None of us can earn that. None of us can go to enough school to get that. Even a whole life, 90 years of living a morally upright life, cannot wipe away your sins against a holy God. You see, friends, God does offer forgiveness, but he offers it on his terms. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot do more right than wrong to erase what we've done against him. And yet God is more merciful to us in Christ than we are sinful towards him. Friends, that's what Jesus is teaching here. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you first have to understand how much you've been forgiven. And as you marinate your heart in that mercy, God will teach you over time how to forgive others who've sinned against you. Forgiven sinners will learn to forgive sins committed against them. Forgiveness is not always automatic. It sometimes takes a while. But forgiveness should be the goal of every true believer when you realize how much you've been forgiven first by God. We can forgive others because God first has forgiven us in Christ. And friends, if you're in a difficult situation even today, having a hard time forgiving someone, maybe it's fresh, the wound is wide open. Reconciliation doesn't even seem possible. Uh, share that with someone. A small circle of trusted friends so that they can pray with you. And then I would say another humble way is say, open up your heart though, open up your life and allow them to ask hard questions. Ask them to pray for you. Let them pray with you but allow them to ask hard questions to begin that process of what it means to forgive someone who has sinned against you. Then lastly, in verse 13, Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, sometimes Christians get hung up on this. 
because they know their Bibles well. James 1.13, God tempts no one to sin, neither can he be tempted. You know, why is Jesus saying, lead us not into temptation if God would never tempt us to sin? Again, what Jesus is doing here is teaching us how to depend on God for our needs in every aspect of our life. God knows we're going to be tempted in this fallen world. He's got Satan on puppet strings. He knows every circumstance you and I face. He knows those Achilles heel sins that it's had a long time in your life to overcome. But friends, Christians should heed every impulse to pray in order to resist every impulse to sin. We should heed every impulse to pray in order to resist every impulse to sin. Friends, how does verse 13, how does that take practical application in our life? You should never, I should never wake up any day not asking God to help me resist sin. Friends, until that day where we are saved to sin no more, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to devour you. And if you're being used of God in the workplace, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your family, you're faithful, the target's on your back. You know that, right? You spend time on your knees in prayer. You say, you know what, I'm going to say no to that event, no to that relationship. I'm going to say no to these temptations from these buddies at happy hour and these buddies on the internet. I'm going to say no to that and yes to Jesus. Friends, those fiery darts are going to come flying. Some of us in here are friends with people that is spiritually dangerous for your soul. That's not a prophetic word. It's just the truth. Friends, the blessed man, the blessed woman walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, seat, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of God, and on his law he meditates day and night. Friends, are the people in your life that you're surrounding yourself with, that you're listening to, drawing you into temptation or in obedience to Jesus? Sinclair Ferguson writes, the first deceptive work of Satan is to deceive us into imagining we will not be deceived. Oh, friends, that lie has been bought a billion of times, billion of times, billions of times. I'm going to be okay. I'm strong enough. You're not. I'm not. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray daily. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lastly, friends, as we conclude, did you notice the plural pronouns Jesus used in this model? Our Father in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And lead us not into temptation. Friends, Jesus envisioned not only Christians having a secret or private prayer life, but he also envisioned us to be a community of praying disciples. That's really where we're at in point four. This is, my notes are all messed up here, the importance of praying together. 
So members of CCBC, how should Jesus' model prayer? How should it practically shape how we pray together as a church? Let me just give you a few things. Number one, our personal ambitions and church's priorities must be submitted to God's will. It's very, just plain and simple. Not my will, but your will be done. Friends, you know how you learn to do this? God, I want this to happen in my life, okay? Think about the request, write it down, and I'll stick this book in your face and go, does God want me to pray that? Are these the type of prayers, are these the type of principles, are these the type of kingdom priorities that God calls us to pray upon? Uh, Friends, first get in the book and hear from God to motivate you to pray to this God. Friends, we cannot rightly pray to God if we're not first rightly hearing from him. Prayer is a two-way street. If we are praying disconnected from this book, it's like trying to have a conversation, me and Michaela having a conversation with earplugs in our ears. It just doesn't work that way. We need his word to inform how we should pray. Number two, our daily dependence on God means there are no vacations in the Christian life. Now, you can take a vacation in your Christian life because you need rest, but not from the Christian life. And friends, Again, as you already said, we're in a war. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, as John Piper has famously said. I want to invite you, if you're a member of this congregation, and if you're visiting with us, come back tonight when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, but also pray as a church together. I pray that our church would be a praying church. Revival, one of the evidence of true revival is God stokes his people's hearts to pray. And they continue to pray more and more. Uh, Friends, I want to invite you, don't skip out on those opportunities that we can pray together as a church. Well, friends, let's conclude. I'm going to skip that point three because it's basically the same thing. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray both by imitation and instruction. And the same will be true for our church. Sometimes prayer is more caught than taught, and that's why it's important to join a local church and be around other mature believers who can show you how to pray. Friends, it's only when a church prays together that we stay together. When a married couple prays together, God uses that to keep them together. Friends, a church that prays together grows in love and maturity together. A church that prays together for God's will to be done is usually a church that God will greatly use for his kingdom purposes. Friends, may we pray in a way that believes that God is in control and that he cares for his children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we need you. We love you. 
Lord, convict us when our hearts are not right when we approach you in prayer. And encourage us that you do reward those who seek you by faith, even in the secret place. Lord, we do pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here at 813 Fort Street in Barling, Arkansas, and to all the communities around us. Lord, use us however you will so that your name might be hallowed among your people. In Jesus' name, amen.